All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. We got a great guest for you guys today. It's John Nichols. Uh, he's been with the nation for a long time. He's our national affairs correspondent. He's also the author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. And uh, I love that. I want to talk about that. Uh, John, welcome back to the Young Turks. It's a great pleasure to be with you, my friend. All right, good to see you, brother. All right, so uh, for, let's just start out nice and easy. Uh, what soul? Um, no, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, what's the fight? Uh, progressives know a lot about it, but uh, a lot of times mainstream media says, what, what? There is no fight. Uh, Nancy Pelosi agrees with uh, the progressives 100%. I don't know why you guys are dissatisfied. Well, I think we know that's not the case. And um, so this book is really uh, a product of a lot of work over many, many years. Um, it it is at once a history and an examination of the moment that we're in. And the bottom line on it is that um, since the end of World War II, uh, when Roosevelt passed away in April of 1945, 75 years ago, um, the Democratic Party has really had a, a brutal battle within it between progressives uh, who had a vision for you know, really addressing the fundamental problems of the country and uh, centrist corporate Democrats who have repeatedly undercut and undermined them, sought to marginalize them, uh, have used the structures and the regulatory power within the party to limit uh, internal democracy, but also have, as, as you suggest, um, uh, benefited from a media that tends to want to treat political parties as just simplistic entities that, that have no dynamics within them. And so what I try to do with the book is, is really begin with the concept that political parties are entities. They evolve, they change, they become better, they become worse. Um, but they also have factions within them that are incredibly powerful and that fight with one another. And what I really wanted to do was also remind people that in many of the fights that have progressives have fought over the last 75 years have been for issues that we now see as completely acceptable, completely responsible, completely necessary. And it's a way of saying that the fights that progressives raise today will in not that long a time be seen as responsible, necessary, required, and yet are today dismissed. So it's it's really just a challenge to the party and the way that it operates. Yeah. Um, well, look, I think the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a big, big difference, too. But first, let's concentrate. Uh, and I want to get to AOC versus Pelosi, et cetera, in a second. But I do want to concentrate on the first part, which is it's amazing how long this fight's been going on. So tell us a little bit about Henry Wallace and, and how the corporate Democrats took him out. Well, this is it's such a good story, and I'd love to spend the whole show talking about it, but I know we don't have that much time. But Henry Wallace was a um, progressive Republican. He had supported Teddy Roosevelt and, and uh, Robert M. La Follette in the presidential campaigns of, of the teens and 20s. He became increasingly dissatisfied with the Republican Party as the Depression rose. He was a farm advocate from rural America. And so Franklin Roosevelt reached out to him and... Uh, Wallace aligned with Roosevelt at the start of the New Deal. He was one of the handful of people who walked into the White House with Roosevelt at the start of the New Deal and was there through the entire period. 
For two terms, he was Secretary of Agriculture, by far the most visionary and activist member of the administration. Roosevelt, in 1940, at a point when he wanted to really move the party to the left, there was simply no question that that was what he was thinking about, brought Wallace in as vice president. He basically forced the party to accept Wallace. It was a very grudging acceptance. And then over the four years that Wallace was vice president, uh, he did something that was very radical and very appropriate to now. Um, he said, look, we're in a really big fight, World War II. It's, it's absolutely all-consuming. We have to be focused on it. But we also have to recognize that coming out of this fight, we have to win the peace, that winning the peace is as big a deal as winning a war. And what he said was the only way the United States would do that was by addressing racism and sexism and imperialism and a host of other aspects of the United States experience that he identified as great challenges and said, you got to do something about it. And at the core so, of it was the message that you did need to create something much more akin to a social welfare state than what we've got. And they, they beat him out of the party for that. So, John, what I'm really curious about is um, how they did it, because so. Henry Wallace is the vice president. If he remains the vice president going into the next election, uh, that's obviously when FDR passed away, and he would have been president instead of Harry Truman. So they wound up replacing him at the convention with a far more conservative VP, that's Truman. Uh, and instead of talking about racism, Truman actually, even though he did some good things like integrating the army, would refer to uh, black people as mud people. Uh, or, or he might have referred to Asians as mud people, but he was—he said things that were horribly, horribly racist, and so was not in the liberal wing. He was in the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. So, how did the people in power get rid of Henry Wallace? Because uh, now they just do it through campaign contributions. We won't give you any contributions if you don't do what we uh, tell you. How do they do it back then? Well, it was, it, the party was much more controlled by bosses, by elites, and by factions. And so during the course of the four years that he was vice president, or really three years coming into 1944, Wallace had offended uh, two very powerful groups within the party. Uh, he offended the big city bosses because he said that the way that they operated was not, it was not the way that, to do uh, either politics or governance, that it had to be equitable and fair. Um, but he especially offended um, the, the Southern segregationists. And people need to remember that at that time, the uh, segregationist wing of the Democratic Party was huge. It was, it was a, the solid South, if you will, the underpinning of the party. And so uh, he offended these two groups. They pressured Roosevelt, who was in the midst of fighting World War II and was very focused on that, and frankly was aging and was not in the best of health. And they really pressured him to uh, essentially allow a quote unquote open convention right, or not to put his thumb on the scale in favor of Wallace. Roosevelt accepted that, and we can't, you know, it shouldn't be denied. He stepped back from that, that fight. He wrote a letter to the convention saying that if he personally was a delegate, he would vote for Wallace, but he didn't say the convention had to do that. Um, they basically tried to exclude Wallace from the process, and then here's where it got fascinating. They allowed him on the stage of the convention as the incumbent vice president of the United States, only for one purpose, and that was to second Franklin Roosevelt's nomination. Wallace went to the stage, and remember at this time, polls showed he was overwhelmingly popular with the American people. He, he was a extremely popular political figure across the country, especially with communities that have been excluded politically in a lot of other aspects. 
So he goes to the, the, the convention, he delivers a very short speech, and he basically says everything that you're not supposed to say. He says, we got to get rid of the poll tax. We got to fight racism. We have to be a party that treats everyone as human beings. He was respectful of women. He um, you know, talked about in the post-war era, creating massive numbers of jobs so that the war economy could be converted to a peace economy. I mean, it was this very bold speech. And the wild thing about it was the convention went, went crazy. They started cheering wildly. And it was clear to Wallace's floor manager at the time, Claude Pepper, that Wallace could be renominated. So Pepper started racing to the stage to just call for a vote. And he was a U.S. senator from Florida at the time. So he's racing to the stage calling for a vote, and they gaveled the convention out of order. They closed it down and uh, stopped, prevented a vote. And then the next night, when they, or the next day when they came back to the convention, a um, whole different ticketing process, and um, all sorts of people who had been on the floor couldn't get on the floor. And they just basically wired the convention, the old smoke-filled room situation, and Wallace was narrowly defeated. See, we did talk about Wallace the whole time. Um, <laughs> and so, but I will tell you this, it is, it's a powerful story because uh, powerful interests in the elites have been against progressives from the very beginning. And, and they've been rigging elections from the very beginning. Uh, in, including yes in the Democratic Party and yes at conventions. So I don't know if we'll see another one of those coming up soon. But uh, finally, John, for now, we'll have you back on. We'll talk more about this because this is so important and central to what's going to uh, happen in the next five years. Mm -hmm. But between the AOC wing and the Pelosi wing, uh, certainly in the short term, uh, I won't even argue it, the Pelosi wing has won and will continue to win. But who winds up winning in the long term and the midterm? Uh, this is the very interesting thing, because uh, that's the point of the book, really. Um, uh, what I argue in, in the book, which is both a history of the past, but very much comes right up to the present. In fact, it closes with a quote from, uh, from AOC, um, is that the times are forcing America and grudgingly even the Democratic Party to catch up with reality. And so I, I think that the, the AOC wing, if you will, does prevail eventually, but it, it will be a brutal fight and, and no one should, should neglect that fact. In fact, one of the problems that progressives always have is that they don't realize they're in a fight. And not, I'm not saying you or any particular person, but too frequently progressives think, oh yeah, the party kind of believes what we believe um, and we just have to be more convincing or we just have to have a better candidate. And one thing that you need to understand is that again and again and again, the party undermines the visionary candidates. And so if you begin with the concept that this is a fight, it's gone on for 75 years, and you've got to be organized to go forward with a vision, that, and it may take years, it may take decades, but if you understand you're, you're fighting for something and it is a fight, then the possibility of winning becomes much greater. And frankly, the realities of our times you know, 30 years of globalization, 20 years of digital revolution, eight to 10 years of automation revolution. Now, in combination with coronavirus and the other crises that we have, mass unemployment, create an opening that may not, uh, we may not have seen since Franklin Roosevelt came in, since Wallace served. And so progressives ought to recognize that and seize it, not for crass political purposes, but because their vision, what they seek to achieve is actually now more necessary than ever.
Yeah. Look, I love what you're saying, John. And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems that we have. And, and the mainstream media gaslights us into saying there is no fight. No, there's definitely a fight. And no one knows that better than me. Uh, and and I'm ready for the fight. And I hope that uh, that others are, too, because we're not going to win over the people in power uh, and they're not going to voluntarily give up their power without a fight. Martin Luther King talked about that all the time. Read any history and you'll know that. And also read John's book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. And you'll you'll know that even better. So, John Nichols, is always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on, brother. It's an honor to be with you, brother. Stay strong. All right, back on the Young Turks. Um, now uh, we're going to have another conversation with another great guest, also from the nation. Uh, Ellie Mistal uh, joins us. He's a justice correspondent. Um, that's a title I always love. Uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, not a big deal. I'm just a justice correspondent. Correspondent yeah. for justice. Yeah, well, uh, in the Republican era, it's more like a correspondent for injustice. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. By the way, you can tell I love that name because um, I, I'm the one uh, who picked the name Justice Democrats. Uh, so uh, I'm all about that. Uh, so, uh, Ellie, uh, we, we, let's talk a little bit about that injustice uh, during this Republican reign. Um, first of all, let's start super broad. Uh, the Republicans are obsessed with the courts. Uh, I talked to someone who covers... Uh, evangelical Christians and Christian nationalism yesterday on the show. And and there's a reason why they want to pack the courts. Uh, but there's actually a couple of reasons. Um, and so uh, tell us, broadly speaking, and the Democrats, unfortunately, don't focus on this that much. But why are the Republicans so laser focused on the courts more than anything else? Yeah, I mean, look, Mitch McConnell does not go around stealing branches of government for nothing. Um, and one of the things that we, we've seen now that they have a conservative, a solid conservative majority on the courts is that they are using the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts as kind of the enforcement branch to push through the rest of the Republican agenda, especially the parts of the agenda that are kind of wildly unpopular, right? The stuff that is difficult for them to get passed at the ballot box. They're using the courts to kind of enforce Republican rule and the Republican agenda. Um, we see that most clearly these days around the issues of voting rights, kind of Republicans generally, even the president, who doesn't understand much, understands that if everybody voted and if everybody's votes voted votes counted equally, then Republicans would not be viable in national elections and many state elections. So the Republicans use the, the courts to suppress the vote, contract the vote, gerrymander the vote, um, and the courts uphold that again and again and again and again. That's a big thing. Obviously, uh, Republicans are kind of antithetical to minority rights and women's rights and gay rights. Republican courts are doing a lot of that work for them um, as well. And there's always the gun thing, which Republican courts are, are generally you know, very pro-gun, very anti-gun regulation. So all of this kind of stealing of the courts is so they can get these policies passed. And I say to Democrats who aren't always focused on the courts, you know, name me an issue that you care about, anything. Take guns, take the environment, name me an issue you care about. I will directly show you how the Supreme Court and losing control of the Supreme Court will frustrate that issue for the next 30 years. Right. So, Ellie, as you were talking, I actually um, had a little bit of an epiphany there because w we know, and that's the conversation I had yesterday on the program, that 
they use abortion as a way to trick religious people in this country to vote for Republicans, and then they pass tax cuts and deregulation, and it's all in service of big business and corporate interests, etc. But actually, uh, as you were explaining that phenomenon, I, I thought, you know, it might be that uh, that they also use abortion to get Republican voters to care so much about judges. But the real goal is not necessarily abortion or even the Second Amendment. The real goal is they knew, Paul Weyrich said it back in 1980, they knew they were never going to win elections in the long run in this country if everybody voted. He's the guy who founded the Heritage Foundation and so many other right-wing think tanks. He's the right-wing godfather. And so, uh, so and in order to, like, the reason why they get their politicians so obsessed with nominating judges and appointing them, appointing judges to the to all levels of courts, is because if they don't have the courts, they're not going to be able to set the rules as to who votes, and if and if they can't set those rules, they're going to lose. Is that the, is that the like the meta game that's being played here in the last forty years? I think it all really does devolve to voting rights. And, you know, I'm, I'm including gerrymandering um, within that kind of suite of rights that Republican politicians are are obsessed with. And I think you're absolutely right that they use abortion. Abortion is the thin end, end of the wedge. They think people act like abortion is the, is, the, is the bad end. It's the thin end. It's the one to get under it because even Republicans wouldn't support judges who kind of explicitly say, well, I'm not going to let people vote because they never know if those people might be them. So they support judges on this kind of general anti-abortion um, um, rhetoric, and it's those same judges who become the judges to suppress voting rights throughout the country. So when you look at kind of recent what the court's doing right now during the virus, their decision in the Wisconsin voting rights case becomes, you know, one of the most obvious examples of how Republicans are using the courts to manipulate the vote, putting people in Wisconsin in the situation where they where, where it was not vote or die, it was vote and die. That if you wanted to exercise your franchise in Wisconsin this during this primary, you had to literally be willing to risk your life. That was a Republican idea. And it's the judges who are kind of lifted up on the on the wings of the anti-abortion crowd who then get to do these, you know, get to make these decisions to put the very franchise at risk for millions. Yeah, and, and today uh, news broke that uh, several dozen people contracted coronavirus at the voting areas in Wisconsin. Uh, it was a death trap, and we warned against it. We warned against it when the Democratic Party was in favor of it, uh, and and then we warned against it when the Republicans were in favor of it and the Democrats had switched. And it, it wasn't a trick on our part to somehow like Bernie Sanders. No, it was real. The virus is real. And if you put people in close contact, they will get it and they did get it. Um, so uh, now, but back to abortion. And, and let me ask a controversial question here. Um, I like that. <laughs> so, look, I, I think Roe v. Wade is fantastic policy. If I was a legislator, it's exactly what I would pass. Uh, and you should know that historically I, I've been conservative judicially and I didn't think it was the right decision because I, I don't think that that was in the Constitution. Uh, but put that aside, as a matter of politics, did Roe v. Wade 
really set the Democratic Party back uh, a long way because it allowed them to use a weapon like this to capture 35% of the country and have them vote maniacally and unquestioningly for the Republican Party for the last 40 years. I will answer your admittedly controversial question, which I don't fully agree. I don't fully agree with you, you know, your, your ba- the background there. But I will answer that with a controversial answer. I think the failure is not the fact that Roe v. Wade happened and this gave Republicans a wedge issue. I think the failure is that Democrats have refused to throatily and chestily and full force defend Roe v. Wade and defend a woman's right to choose for over 40 years. The Democratic Party is still fundamentally locked in the abortion should be safe, legal, and rare stuff as opposed to kind of vociferously defending the right of a woman to have autonomy over her own body. I do not think that this is a particularly close case or a particularly close issue. If you wanted me to say something controversial, it would go something like this. The Constitution does not give the state any right to do anything about anybody's body until after the baby is outside the mother's womb. Boom. Abortion should be legal up to nine, eight, eight months and... 20, you know, three and a half days. Like, you could go that far for me constitutionally to set the edge and then say, but with things like Roe v. Wade and Casey and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, we've come up with a compromise solution that still fundamentally protects a woman's right to choose, but also allows for a compelling state interest and blah, 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 whatever. That would be that would be a truly aggressive, progressive stand that we could have had for the past 30 years. But instead, for the past 30 or 40 years, we've acted like, oh, abortion, ew. I mean, uh, I guess I, I guess we have to sometimes let women control, but like only in only in the maximal work. Like that 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 is to me what the failure is. We have we have this decision and we've failed to defend it properly. And that is what has allowed the Republican zeitgeist around this issue to gain so much power and so much steam. Preach it, brother. From, uh, from, from zygos to zeitgeist. So, uh, Ellie, look, the, uh, everything you said, I agree 100% with. Uh, and look, I, when it comes to policy, uh, it's a, they're an anti-freedom country. Uh, the, they are taking away the liberty of 51% of the population. Uh, and uh, the, there's nothing more core to our liberties than the ability to control our own bodies. Uh, and, uh, can I, and, by and, the, and can I just jump in? I just, I just want, I mean, like, that is, where, that is where I think we have to be in a secular society that respects all viewpoints. Personally, I mean, uh, this is not, this was, this, I have two kids and this was not going to be a thing for, for me and my family, right? And my wife and I discussed significantly before we even were in the realm of a possibility of having kids of just how important things like birth control were going to be in our lives, you know, because we didn't want to have to make this choice. We didn't want to have to make this kind of decision. All I'm saying is that that private decision that my wife and I were able to make is the kind of private decision that constitutionally, I believe every woman has a right to. Yeah. So, uh, I, so wh- whether it's constitutional or not, it, it is the wish of the seventy percent of the country. Uh, it is a wish of uh, a higher percentage of women, and and it's uh, it's definitely uh, about your freedom. It's about your liberty, 
And and the great trick that the Republicans played is that they captured uh, religious people in this country, and the Democrats ceded that ground, and they should have never, ever ceded that ground. The reality is the uh, Bible is pro-abortion. It just is. It's in numbers. It says if your wife cheats on you, you should give her a toxic potion, and if she cheated, she'll have an abortion, and that'll be great, and God will be really happy. Uh, so you should look it up. Uh, it's um, that's a fact. But but Democrats are too afraid. They're and that and that they've been afraid of Republicans my entire life, and it's just sickening. And and yeah, go ahead, Ellie. Just last thought here. I also just think that the ground that was truly seeded with the religious right wasn't even over the abortion issue. It was over the poverty issue. Like I, you know, I'm yes. I was raised Catholic. You know, I've I've I've, I've done the catechisms. <laughs> At the, there is no there is no religion pretty much on this planet that I am aware of that that espouses the Republican kind of cruelty and, and, and dismissiveness towards the poor and the sick and the weak. And ceding that ground to Republicans with their prosperity gospels and their whatever um, has, has really been the failure. I think that ground was ceded so much because of racial issues, because, all, because so many of these so-called Christian conservatives um, and so-called religious conservatives find it okay to deny services as simple as food and medical care um, to black and brown communities in this country. And it's because of that, again, uh, if I'm going to criticize the Democrats for being unwilling to fight, that's where I'm going to criticize the fight, right? Like fight for the poor racial minorities just as, as vociferously as you might fight for poor rural white minorities, losing Christians to that, to that racism to me um, is, is where the failure is. And, and fight for uh, the poor, the needy uh, minorities as vociferously as Jesus would have done. Uh, it's not it's not too much to ask for. Right. Uh, I would right. agree. Right. Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for the Nation. You're awesome. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jake.